Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. And we are going to continue our look at Jesus last week before his crucifixion. Today we are uh, we have the full house. We have Chase Byers from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we have Joe Works from Elmira, New York. How long has it been since we've done a webcast with all three of us here? My guess is the end of June. Yeah. So it's good to have good to have both you guys together today. So we we got started last week. Chase and I did. And uh, let's do a quick recap of uh, Matthew chapter 21 and uh, the first part of chapter 22, and then we'll pick up where we left off. So uh, we, we started last week with Jesus riding into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which would be just to the east of Jerusalem. He's riding in on a donkey, on, on the, uh, a baby donkey, and um, not, not the way you would think of a secular king, a, a, a typical hero picture of a great military conqueror or something like that coming in. But he comes in and he cleanses the temple. And of course, this gets the attention of the religious leaders. And they ask, by what authority do you do this? And he points to John and says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? If you answer that question, I'll answer your question. Well, they couldn't answer from heaven, because if they did, then they'd have to be admitting that John the Baptist was a prophet of God, and what he said was from heaven, and John the Baptist testified to Jesus' identity, which would have answered the question by what authority Jesus did what he did. They didn't want to go there, but they couldn't say that John's baptism was just from men because the people understood John was a prophet, and these religious leaders did not want to be in, in trouble with the populace. So they said, well, we don't know. And um, so Jesus talks about two sons, one who said he was going to do the right thing and didn't, and one who said he wasn't going to do the right thing and did. And he used that to make the point that these religious leaders who acted like they were serving God were not, and that was inadequate. And then we got into Matthew chapter 21 and 22, where there are some parables that Jesus tells that again, uh, just pointed right at the religious leaders of the Jews, and they began to realize he was indicting them. And so we get into Matthew 22, and they start trying to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. And uh, of course, first of all, uh, the Pharisees and uh, some of the Herodians come to Jesus, and they ask about paying tribute to Caesar. They think they can make Jesus look bad no matter what he says, that if he says, yes, we must pay tribute to Caesar, that's going to upset the Jewish populace that resented Roman rule. If he says, no, we don't have to pay tribute to Caesar, this is going to put him in trouble with the authorities. Uh, he's going to look like an insurrectionist as a leader of a rebellion. Uh, but he just points the coin whose inscription uh, is on, whose picture's on it, and they say Caesar's, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You can hardly fault a man for saying, if you're using Caesar's money, then you got to pay Caesar taxes. Um, and then, then there comes the question we're going to pick up with today. So anything you guys want to go back and touch on in terms of uh, the review? Let's stop sharing our screen here and, and get us all on, on here, at least who are speaking. Anything you want to go back to? No. No. All right, I thought we had a comment from a viewer, and I saw it. See, now it was telling me to stop sharing the screen. <laughs> All right. You have a little deja vu with that? Yeah, I, I know. I actually do remember we did the same thing last week. 
<laughs> something to be said for consistency. But the thing is, I saw the little message there, stop screen sharing. So, oh, so I stopped screen sharing and then I forgot that I got it. And so I was thinking, now, where was that message from a viewer? All right. But if we have viewers who want to send us a comment or a question, please do so. You can use the chat window or Chase will be monitoring the comments on the Facebook page. All right, Joe, you've been away for a little while. Uh, why don't you take us through this question that the Sadducees put to Jesus, starting in Matthew chapter 22. We actually got a brief look at it last week, but we didn't go into much detail. So let's start in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 23. This is their attempt to discredit Jesus. Do we want to read the text first? Or? Sure. Okay. Uh, 23 through 33 then. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no, no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So there, th this is a, um, a practice that was incorporated into the law of Moses. And, and as we mentioned last week, it was known even before the law of Moses. And the practice was, if you have a situation where a man dies without any, any offspring, then his brother is to raise up descendants for the deceased man by the widow. And so uh, we see that back in Genesis, the 38th chapter with Judah and his sons, who one after another uh, take Tamar um, to raise up children to the, to the first son of Judah who had married Tamar. Um, and then in Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter, we see it incorporated into the law of Moses. Um, so do you, first, first question, what is the Sadducees goal in asking this question? It seems like it's particularly to, to humiliate Jesus um, uh, and discredit this teaching about the resurrection, but also present such a ludicrous scenario that uh, only a fool would think that there is a resurrection because Look at the mess that that would create. Right, yeah. right. You can't, you can't have a woman with seven husbands. And what, she's just going to pick the one she liked best? I mean, how, how's that going to work in the afterlife? And I mean, you, yeah. you see this. I'm sure you guys have had this happen with different people you've studied the scriptures with. If they can come up with some kind of crazy hypothetical situation. Then it just necessarily takes away the um, meaning of the text or passage or whatever. And so this is a tactic that's used today. I'm sure there's an actual word for it, but I don't know. You know, that's a really good point because obviously the Sadducees are not asking this question sincerely. They're not asking like, 
you know, we really wonder how would that work out? What would the answer be? No, their whole agenda is to discredit Jesus. And oftentimes when people come up with crazy scenarios today, I mean, sure, somebody may come up with a crazy scenario and they're sincere, but oftentimes they have the same agenda. They're just trying to make the word of God look bad or make you look bad for believing in the word of God, that kind of thing. So in this text, uh, it's pretty hard to imagine this situation. Uh, surely the fifth, sixth, and seventh brother would be pretty afraid of this lady. Um, uh, but <laughs> don't, doesn't it read to you, or, or maybe I should just ask this as a question, does it read to you that they are portraying this not as hypothetical, but as, as real, the way that they say at least? Uh, yeah, verse 25. Uh, it, it looks at me. There were with us seven brothers. Yeah. They seem to be claiming it, it actually happened. Right, right. Which is very hard to believe. You already see their dishonesty. So I don't think there's any reason that we should say, well, this probably did really happen. Sure, it could. Um, uh, but this would be a very rare scenario to, to, to picture. Um, uh, but that's what people do with illustrations um, and somebody a long time ago pointed out to me that illustrations illustrate, and that's all that they do. Um, uh, you know, so sometimes people think that an illustration is going to prove a point. It, it can't prove a point. All it can do is illustrate a point. It, it, it might emphasize something you're trying to teach, but that's all it's going to do. Yeah, it might help somebody understand the points you're making, but right. the illustration right. doesn't prove anything. And it, I, I, I'm suspicious of the of the of the veracity of these people when they come to Jesus also. Um, I'm also suspicious. All right, so so Jesus has a couple of responses. What's his first response? Um, Well, first of all, they don't know what they're talking about. He said, you're mistaken with the scriptures and uh, verse 29 uh, and the power of God. And, And so they don't know the power of God. They don't believe in the resurrection. And we talked last week about the fact that the Sadducees were a sect of the Jews that did not believe in angels, spirit, or resurrection. That's what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 23 and verse 8. Josephus tells us something similar. And, and to underscore the, this point, these were the people who controlled the highest echelons of the priesthood. So we've got religious leaders who are materialists, religious leaders who cannot believe in anything beyond what they see in this physical world. And uh, that's something that also exists in the religious world today. Uh, just because somebody wears a, a, a robe doesn't mean he has faith. As a matter of fact, the fact that he's going around putting on special garments to call attention to his religious status suggests he doesn't have faith, at least not in what Jesus said about religious leaders who do that. But the point here is that I want to make is a lot of people just assume that if somebody is a religious leader, then surely he must be close to God. These people weren't. There was a, sir, I don't want to get too far off track on that, but we ought to be very aware of that. I forget the exact percentage, but somebody uh, a while back went through like uh, people who were in their senior year of, of seminary school and took a poll of how many of them believed in the resurrection and it was a minority that actually believed in the resurrection. Um, just this is kind of off a tangent, but while we're while we're off on this idea, um, 
I saw this morning an article in Biblical Archaeological Review, Rehabilitating Jezebel. The question was, was Jezebel really all that bad? And oh. uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Now back to the text here. Yeah. Back to the text. We come to uh, Matthew chapter 22 and verse uh, 30. And Jesus, Jesus makes the point that there is no marriage in heaven. Marriage is, is something that belongs to this life. Uh, but then there's a second point that he makes starting in verse 31 and what is that point <clears throat> the, the scriptures teach the resurrection of the dead yeah now the 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 passage that he refers to and the point that he makes he doesn't really point to resurrection specifically but he does point to life after death he does point to existence beyond the grave um and so, so he's, Jeff, it, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to ask. So, would it have been fair to say that these Sadducees they would have known the passage that Jesus is quoting, and they would have known exactly where it was? What What is that? Yeah, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Book of Exodus. So yeah, it's Exodus. long after. Yeah, it's it's after these fellows would have died. Yeah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob—they all live back in the Book of Genesis. There. You know, Abraham is probably 1,800 years before Jesus. And then we come to Exodus chapter 3 in the time of Moses, you know, a little over 1,400 years before Jesus. So we're moving forward in time around 400 years. And Moses is at the burning bush, and he turns aside to see what's going on with this bush that's burning and never is consumed. And God speaks to him from the burning bush, take off your shoes for the, you're on holy ground, etc. And then, and then God says to him in Exodus, the third chapter in verse six, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus alludes to that passage. And um, I think in, in Mark's account, does it say in the place in the place concerning the bush? Is that how he cites the passage That's in Mark's right. account? Uh, yeah. I don't. Is that in Mark's account? Oh, you can check it. But in any event, they know exactly what he's talking about. And he puts the question to him. Yeah. Is yeah. God the God Mark's of the living or is he the God of the dead? Well, these are Sadducees. They're not about to claim that they worship a God who's the God of the dead. They don't even believe in spirits or resurrection or angels or anything. So they're not, they're not going to want to say their God is the God of the dead. But on the other hand, he claims to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have left this earth. So how do you, how do you answer that? Well, well they couldn't. But, but the clear implication is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still in some sense alive, even though they had died. And while that does not per se speak to the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, it, it undermines their, their philosophy, which precluded their belief in the resurrection. Does that, does that sound accurate? Does that sound fair enough? Yeah, I think so. All right. So he's handled a couple of questions here. If I, might, if I might, Jeff, just touch on verse 30, um, uh, that there, there is no marriage in heaven. Um, uh, I think that, that might be something that is helpful for people to remember. Um, uh, uh, I don't want to bring comfort to our, our wives with that. <laughs> but um, uh, They're not stuck with us for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> just, um, stuck, just just till death do ye part <laughs> exactly 
But but I do wonder, and and I don't want to make this larger than what it is. Uh, but there is marriage in heaven, but it's not this marriage between two persons. It's the bride of Christ, and uh, and, and Christ is the groom. Um, it almost seems like there's this this culmination of of the perfect marriage in heaven. Uh, thinking about how Ephesians five ties those together. Um, again, I don't want to go too far off the, the the text here, but but I just wonder if we ought to see marriage as as that which leads us toward the the great marriage relationship, somewhat like seeing our dads leading us toward the father. You know, there's a lot of that sort of imagery that we have in our lives that point us toward the spiritual perfect reality. I, I don't know, probably a better word. Yeah. No, I think I think it's a good point. And you know, if somebody doesn't have a a good relationship with his father, but he is aware of good relationships, he may be drawn to the idea. Well, he has an eternal father. On the other hand, if somebody has a very good relationship with his father, he may say, "Well, why would I want another father?" Similarly, if somebody has a very good marriage, they may they may say, "Well, I would I don't want to not be married to my wife in the afterlife. Why would I want some other kind of marriage?" And this, I think, is where we have to put our faith in the God who created us and created marriage and created fatherhood, created all of these things and recognize that what he has given us in this life is a foretaste of something greater and grander to come. Yeah, I, I like that foretaste. That's a, that's a good word. That's what I should have used to begin with. I like that. All right. So then uh, there's one more question, and it's in verse 34. Chase, why don't you take us through this, starting in verse 34 and going through verse 40? Yeah, sure. So the Pharisees come to Jesus. So First, it was the Pharisees and Herodians, Sadducees. Now it's the Pharisees here that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and they gathered themselves together. So they huddle up. They're ready to get together and come up with the one question. Well, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you look at the different accounts, it's a little hard for me to nail down this guy's motive. Whether this guy yes. is really, what would you say? No, I was agreeing with you. I think so. Because in Mark's gospel specifically is what I think throws a monkey wrench in some of it. Um, because all the other guys had been asking their questions and were told that it's a scribe who heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, said what commandment is the foremost of all. Yeah. And um, so that, that for me also gives me a pause to think maybe, maybe this guy is more sincere than the other fellows. And, and in Mark's account, then after Jesus gives the answer, this scribe goes on and says, of a truth teacher, thou hast well said that he is one and there's none other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and scribes. And it says, Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, and he said unto him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Right. So, so you, you kind of do get the impression that this guy is not just set on, on uh, discrediting Jesus. He's a little bit more maybe sincere. 
but we need to now we do have this we do have this um pat pat donahue's uh listening and he makes the comment that it says tempting him or testing him the american standard says trying him matthew 22 verse 35 one of them a lawyer asked him a question trying him putting him to test and and, and go ahead is that a bad thing I, I think that's a question to ask here, because, I mean, when you look at, uh, for instance, in First John, I don't know if it's the same Greek word, he'll tell us to test the spirits. Right. And mm-hmm. so is it is it a bad thing to be testing this Jesus? Yeah, we're not supposed to make trial of, of the Lord our God. And we've talked about, I think, in recent weeks, the idea of a child testing the limits of his yeah. parents' authority, seeing what he can get away with. And the Israelites would do that in the wilderness. But if you are considering Jesus... And you're trying to figure out, okay, is this the Christ or not? Is this the Son of God or not? You might ask a question testing him. Jesus himself in John the 10th chapter said, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know that the Father's in me and I in him. So I'm not sure that that testing him necessarily indicts this this man. If you think about Luke's account, you have the Pharisee question of Caesar, you have the Sadducee question of the resurrection, and you don't have the question that we're discussing right now. Instead, what Luke says at the end of the resurrection question is, then some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you've spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Uh, Luke 20, verses 39 and 40. Uh, so Luke doesn't even record that one, as we might be tempted to think of this as a as a trio of trick questions or whatever. Uh-huh. Luke Luke breaks it off and says they're not questioning him, and I think the idea is obviously they do ask another question. Matthew and Mark tells us that, but it seems to imply that this is a different kind of question. Yeah. So uh, what about this statement, how Jesus answers the question, though? What is the great commandment? And and Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind. This is the great commandment. And the second, like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he says on these two commandments, the, the whole law hangs in the prophets. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I think, I mean, go ahead, Chase. I was just going to say every every commandment you would read about in the Old Testament hinges on these two things. And it, it really is a good question. I, I think if I was Jewish trying to follow the Torah as closely as I can, and especially with him being a scribe, um, you know, or a lawyer, rather, knowing all of those commandments, I think it would be hard. I, I think you would know just how tough it is to follow each and every commandment. And so to ask a rabbi, which one do I really need to focus on? I think does come from a place of sincerity. And Jesus' answer, just like the others, uh, he answers it perfectly. I think it's interesting that in Luke, the 10th chapter, where there's another individual, a lawyer, who comes and asks Jesus yeah. a question about inheriting eternal life, Jesus puts it right back to him and says, you know, right. you're an expert in law. You should know what's written. How do you read? And he comes up with this answer in verse 27. He answering yeah. said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and and thy neighbor as thyself. Um, so he love God, love your neighbor. Um, which and those two things aren't put together in the Old Testament in that way, but he knows to put them together. So do, correct me if I'm wrong. The, the Shema, Deuteronomy six, four, and five, wasn't that a a well known? 
um, statement, a declaration, uh, like what the man here in Luke 10 is saying, it, he knows the right answer. Wasn't that generally recognized as the greatest commandment, or, or am I mistaken? I, I remember reading that. I don't I, I think you may be right. You talk about Deuteronomy 6, 5, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, might. But yeah. it, it doesn't go on and connect that with loving your neighbor as yourself. Right, right. Um, and, and so, uh, but, but it seems as if that was not, that's not something that Jesus is initiating right now. Right. Be, because of what the lawyer says there in Luke 10. He knows it. Been somewhat common knowledge which then makes me wonder if the man that we're talking about here in Matthew 22, if he's not sort of just starting to question everything. Wow, uh, I've heard how he was responding to this guy about this and this guy about that. I wonder what we've been taught about the, well, what is the greatest commandment then? Yeah, it, It's like, I, I, need to, I need to just wipe the board completely clean and Jesus, help me understand wh what is the greatest command? that's the way that I'm taking his questioning here because I don't see it as the same as, as what those others were, were saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and then, and then perhaps then it following that train of thought, then when Jesus responds in a way that the man would have recognized as sounding familiar and he would, okay, all right. So that is true. Um, okay. But now let's think about this though. A lot of people think about all of the laws, you know, every, every law, all the laws, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Chase said that something to the effect, that's what all the laws are about. I, I think maybe I would say it, all of God's laws were teaching man to love God or to love his neighbor or, or both. And then people think about all of the minutia and all of the laws in the Old Testament. And they don't come away with the idea that all of the law was about loving God and loving your fellow man. I think some people kind of have the idea that a lot of those laws were just kind of arbitrary hurdles that God placed in man's way. Okay, you got to do this, you got to do that. Let me think up some more things for to make them have to do. Um, I, I wish we had somebody here who could speak to the spiritual nature of the Old <laughs> Testament law. <laughs> Yeah, if only there were. Uh, as you're thinking through the, the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you, you have this emphasis um, uh, on how you uh, respond to God and to one another. You know, when he says upon all the law, take the Ten Commandments as an example uh, given for us uh, there uh, in Exodus 20 and then in Deuteronomy 5, right before this greatest commandment. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 5 has the Ten Commandments. Uh, and then he gives this greatest commandment. Break the Ten Commandments into uh, what I've heard before of vertical and horizontal. Yeah. The commandments that relate to God, the first four, the commandments that relate to how we treat one another, the last six. Yeah. Uh, Thou shalt not worship any other gods. Love the Lord your God. Right. Don't commit adultery. <laughs> Love your neighbor. <laughs> yeah. um, don't, don't steal his wife. Yeah. Uh -huh. And, and, then, and then you can also, so really the, the law is, is based upon those principles of and, loving and, God and loving neighbor. And even when we get into the dietary restrictions, for example, those are not arbitrary. They're teaching a lesson. They're teaching a lesson about uh, so things that are holy and things that aren't, things that lead to death 
and things that don't lead to death. And, and it's all about God's plan for man and loving things that are from God. Um, Maybe also recognize Leviticus 19, 18 is yep. where you find that you shall love your neighbor. Leviticus 19 has basically at, at least nine of the 10 commandments are listed in Leviticus 19. Uh, I would suggest that we could find all 10 of them, but I'm not going to argue about the uh, the adultery one uh, as clear. We already have Leviticus 18. The, the yeah. But Leviticus 19, again, is in the heart of the Ten Commandments being explained in almost in conversation form. Um, and what we have inserted in there is loving your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's kind of cool that following the Ten Commandments is the greatest commandment. In the middle of the Ten Commandments in Leviticus is the second greatest commandment. Yeah, that's nice. So, all right, uh, just to mention here real quickly also, Paul will make allusion to the idea of loving God and especially loving your neighbor as being the fulfillment of the law. He'll mention that the latter point in Romans, the 13th chapter, and he'll mention it also in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Um, and that's the way we should look at God's law. You know, first John chapter five and verse three says, um, this is the love of God that you keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not just uh, arbitrary obstacles. His commandments are teaching us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. So we've had these questions and Jesus has dealt with all of them. And so now it says in Matthew twenty two forty one, 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He said, all right, my turn. <laughs> so he asked them a question saying, what do you think of the Christ? And I think that some, for some people, it's helpful to point out, he's not saying, what do you think of me? He is the Christ, but he is not assuming that, he's not assuming that they are willing to acknowledge that. He's just abstractly, you, you believe there's a Christ coming. What do you think of the Christ? Remember, Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, son of David. They understood that. The Christ was to come from the line of David. So he says to them in verse 43, well, then how does David in the spirit, meaning by inspiration, being led by the spirit, how does David call him, call the Christ, Lord? What's he talking about? Well, you have Psalm 110 uh, that he's quoting there in verse 44. Yeah, he goes, he goes ahead and gives the quotation. Verse 44, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit down my right hand till I put thine enemies underneath thy feet, which is a quotation from the first verse of Psalm 110. And David wrote that. Right. And so, so what he has is David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, and that my Lord is where Jesus is implying that David was speaking of the Christ and calling the Christ Lord. And so David, Jesus spells it out in verse 45. If David then calls him Lord, how's he his son? So, uh, Joe, you have two sons. Do you call either one of them Lord? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Would you call your grandson? I have grandsons who are part of the, who worship with you there in Elmira. I don't, I don't refer to them as Lord. Right. So how could David refer to his descendant as Lord? So that's the question. And how did they handle that question? Uh, um, it looks like they just didn't know. <laughs> <So> they didn't <laughs> say anything. 
there's an odd, we understand how David could call the Christ Lord because we understand David's descendant, Jesus, who is the Christ, was actually David's creator, that Jesus existed before he was in the form of a man, and that as God, he is David's creator, and so David could refer to him as Lord. But the interesting thing about this passage to me is that Jesus' question assumes that David is referring to the Christ, and the, his, his uh, counterparts do not reject that. That would have been the way out for them. The way out for them would have been to say, David wasn't calling the Christ Lord. Where did you get that idea? But they did not do that. And that's a testimony to the fact that they apparently acknowledge Psalm 110 is talking about the Messiah, which is fascinating because Psalm 110 is the psalm that goes ahead and talks about the Messiah is going to rule in the midst of his enemies and, and that he is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is talking about the Christ and says the Christ will be both king and priest. And these Jews who are listening to Jesus seem to admit, acknowledge David was talking about the Christ. You know, I, I suspect that uh, the Jews and Jesus, they would have been excited about Psalm 110 in verse 2. Uh, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. You know, that's what they were looking for, that kind of a Messiah, one who was going to bring Rome to its knees and that sort of thing. Um, uh, so, yeah, they accepted Psalm 110. They were failing to see uh, the, the spiritual nature of uh, the one who was yeah. going to, to come in the likeness of Melchizedek. All right, let's, let's do this. Let's just recap again just a little bit. So remember, we have Jesus. We talked last week about how he came in riding on the donkey in, in, uh, on what we would say is Sunday, cleanses the temple. And then during the ensuing week, he is going out to, to Bethany just over the, the crest of the Mount of Olives each evening, spending the night there, and then coming back in during the day into Jerusalem and in the temple and in the environs of the temple, he is teaching. And he is teaching parables that are indicting the religious leaders of his day. And he's having these kinds of discussions that we've seen here in Matthew 22. And now we come to Matthew chapter 23. And, and you know, early on, Jesus was a little bit careful about revealing his hand. He was a little bit careful about getting too much notoriety and stirring up too much opposition, not out of lack of courage, but simply because his hour had not yet come. Now his hour is arriving, and he is saying those things which are going to result in the opposition putting him to death. And so we come to Matthew chapter 23, and he just, he, he lays into the, the religious leaders of his day. So when you guys want to pick up the reading in Matthew 23, and I guess let's go all the way. How much time do we have? Let's go all the way through verse. Let's, let's first of all go through verse. So let's go through verse seven. No, let's go through verse four, and then we'll go five through 12. Let's go through verse four. I'll take that. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. 
Okay, what's he talking about? Heavy burdens that they lay on men's shoulders and they themselves will not move them with their finger. What's he talking about? They had all kinds of rules that went far beyond what Moses had said um, and were requiring those of uh, the people, but they viewed themselves as being above the law. Yeah, and so he's going to use the word hypocrite repeatedly later on in this chapter. And then verse five, uh, but all their works they do to be seen of men. And we might pause there and think back to Matthew six, where he talked about yeah. giving alms and and uh, what else there, Chase, um, praying and oh, giving alms, praying and fasting. Yeah, doing it in a very conspicuous way to get credit for doing it in the sight of men. And so he says here in verse. Uh, Six, they love the chief place at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. Uh, oh, did I skip the fact that they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments in verse five? In verse seven, they, they like the salutations in the marketplace and to be called of men, rabbi. So this is a familiar picture to a lot of us. First of all, I guess let's talk about the phylacteries. What are phylacteries? Like a... Like a little box with the law on it that they'd keep on their forehead. Yeah, on their forehead and on their wrist, they would carry these little boxes with scriptures in them. Um, and apparently... Does it, does it look kind of as ridiculous as it sounds? Yeah, it does. <laughs> I've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, you and know, I don't, I don't mean that. Yeah, I don't mean that in a rude way. I just it's very It's very interesting to try and picture what that would have looked like. But is the idea here that, I mean, they're, they're broadening it. So they're making it larger than it has to be so that people see them. That's I right. mean, it's the equivalency, like we were talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, of blowing the trumpet before they gave to the poor. That, that's right. Look, look at how big a box of scripture I have on my forehead, that kind of a thing. So uh, to me, one of the ironies about that is, if I'm not mistaken, that's based off of the text in Deuteronomy 6. In verse eight, yeah, shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Uh, and so they were taking that verse quite literal. Right, has just pointed out to them how they've ignored the few the the Shema, you know, verses four and five uh, of loving God with your whole being. And so there, there's a place where they've taken just one aspect of Deuteronomy six, those first few verses, but really ignored the the, the principle of what Jesus is trying, what, what is it that he wants bound on them is the love of God. What they've bound on them is a box. Now, you, you, you've used that word Shema uh, two or three times here. Maybe let's just take a moment just to explain that, because I expect there are people who are wondering, why does he keep, why does he keep saying that word? <laughs> sounds like, only, sounds like Joe wants us to know that, that know. he knows that word. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll try to put this in the right pericope. Um, uh, <laughs> All right, well, make sure you're ferocious as you do it. That's a word Jeff okay, used earlier. I'll do that. So the word Shema means here in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the Shema is, that's the phrase that the Jews use for Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Matthew only quotes verse 5. Mark's account quotes verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And so... Um, so it begins with the word here, here, O Israel, Shema. Right. 
right? And, and, and that would be very common for the Hebrews. They would name their books after the first few words sure. in a book. And so this phrase, and that's, that was the point that I was trying to make with that word Shema was, this was something that was well known. They called, there's a lot of other places in scripture where the word here is used, but this is called the here. Right. H-E-A-R. Right. So significant to the Jews. Sure, exactly. All right, thank you for that. All right, so then back to Matthew chapter 23. So we, we have these this picture of the Pharisees doing all these things to, to make themselves appear righteous. And uh, then you start thinking about somebody who um, does things with his clothing so that people can see he's a religious leader. Somebody who goes into the grocery store and expects people to, to refer to him by some religious title, even if they've never met him before, but by his appearance to recognize his status as a religious leader and to give him a special title. You know, that's that exists in the world that we live in today, doesn't it? Right. Uh, both in, you can think of it both in Protestantism and in Catholicism, but certainly in Catholicism, the man who expects to be called father and he goes about dressed in a special way. So people will know he is to be called father. And Jesus says here in Matthew 23 in verse eight, be not ye called rabbi, which, which means teacher for one is your teacher and all you are brethren call no man, your father on the earth for one is your father. Even he who is in heaven, neither be called masters for one is your master, even the Christ, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and whosoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. So Jesus, is, I mean, there are certainly roles. We'll read as we go further on in the New Testament. There are different roles that people in the kingdom of God have. But we are not to set somebody up on a pedestal simply because of his status and, and uh, his, because of his particular role, give him status that demands that he dress differently and look differently and get a different title that all of us look up to him. The whole clergy laity distinction that you see in the religious world today, that's the kind of thing Jesus is arguing against here. Which, which he's also been trying to teach his own disciples, you know, go back to uh, verse one, he spoke to the multitude and to his yeah. disciples He's been trying to teach his disciples that same principle. Yeah. You know, if I, being your master, wash your feet, you know, uh, the servant is not greater than his master. Uh, the first shall become last. Uh, those are things that Jesus has been teaching uh, his followers, and the apostles get it. You don't see them dressing in a, in a distinct way in the book of Acts and so forth. Uh, it's a shame that people can't see what appears to be such it's clear and strong teaching, um, uh, and yet today you, you, we witness it all over the place, uh, yeah. wanting to have these very and, things. And I, I wonder how much of the disciples are tempted to look at the Pharisees and say, wow, look at these guys, you know, they got it together. And Jesus is spending so much time saying, guys, th these are not the people you're supposed to be looking up to. And then starting in the next verse, he just starts saying, woe, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for you enter not in yourselves. You, talking to the religious leaders, don't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Neither suffer ye them that are entering in to enter. You're not entering in yourself, and you're, you're inhibiting others from entering. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, 
And when he has become so, you make him twofold more a son of hell than yourselves. Just let's stop there and just contemplate Jesus the last week before he's crucified is daily in the temple saying these kinds of things to the religious leaders. He's not out in some little village in the middle of nowhere in a rural part of Galilee or something. He is in Jerusalem in the temple saying these kinds of things. Is it surprising that the people who were hearing these words have had enough? at this point you know you can respond to jesus teaching rightly and submit to god's will or you can say i don't like this and if you don't like this he is being so forward in in how he is saying it things are going to come to a head and he's going to be crucified no there there's a reason this is recorded for us in chapter 23 and not in chapter 2 this is this is late in the game this is getting closer to the crucifixion um, Jesus is really turning up the heat on the Pharisees here. Any last word? All right, so we'll pick it up there. Next time we'll pick it up in chapter 23 and verse 16, and we'll see what else Jesus has to say to the Pharisees. And then we'll be moving on into chapter 24, where he just talks about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And you, you just see the case building. Um, all right. Uh, thank you for listening today, and we hope you'll be able to join us again next week. For those of you who listen to this as a recording in your own time, we're glad to do that.